0: So welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump, President Trump. Take an honest look at the current administration and we expose the existential threats to America. This week is 9-11 week. Right. As we talk to you. And we're going to get some uh, remembrances from 9-11. Let me tell you about our guest. Mike Gallagher is a congressman from Wisconsin, 8th District. He'll share his thoughts on 9-11, on the threat posed by China and we'll ask about afghanistan as well also joining then today seth leapson he was a producer of uh, my radio show where right. you and i served mm-hmm. with seth uh and he's heard daily on kknt 960 am in phoenix he's also the co-author of american greatness how conservatism inc missed the 2016 election and what the dc establishment needs to learn you're listening to the bill bennett show uh, I want to talk a little bit about nine eleven, just a little bit, because we're going to talk a lot about it with Seth, but um, and, and a little bit with Mike Gallagher. But first, yeah, uh, you know, football's back, and everybody knows how much I like football. And you know, just this kind of side story that made some news. I was watching the incredible game between the New Orleans Saints and the Houston Texans. Right? Yeah,
1: the uh, Saints wanted last second field goal. Unbelievable! Drew Brees. Drew Brees, He's with Thirty
0: something seconds, and just unbelievable. Yeah, it was a good game. Forty year old, forty one year old. Right? Nice. Yeah. How old's yeah. Brady? Forty two yeah yeah unbelievable unbelievable you got a future you're still a very young man <laughs> i could play four you could years play quarterback, you know. <laughs> but breeze uh apparently did a public service announcement in which he said uh, hey don't forget bring your bible to school it's october yeah
1: i think i third or fourth something, something like that, that. Yeah.
0: yeah bring your bible to school and and Seemed fine to me, but mm-hmm. there was some criticism, some backlash, right?
1: Yeah, from what I understand, it's because it's associated with focus on the family, and I mean, obviously, they believe in the traditional um, definition of marriage, and they get a lot of you know heat about that, and they're outspoken about it, not in an offensive way, just I mean, on their own programming and on media platforms, they talk about it, and uh, so Drew. You know, what does was wrong about and, what he did? Nothing. Well, I don't according think to critics. Was, Well, according to critics, he's associating himself with um, focus on the family, which critics would say is a homophobic organization, I guess, or believe in the traditional definition of marriage, and I, I just don't understand what's
0: wrong with that amazing um remember something yeah. michael novak my old colleague in power america used to say he said the only respectable bigotry now is bigotry against uh, christians right right and uh, it does seem to have a kind of respectability among the chattering classes the liberal chattering classes the media uh the academics and so on it's a shame what a good guy mm-hmm. uh true mm-hmm. is, and it's a remarkable actually i don't have the list in front of me but a lot of these very successful nfl quarterbacks are deeply religious men oh a lot of them absolutely yeah. absolutely yeah and of course we have our friend sean alexander not a quarterback but, yeah you know, right a record holding well, well nfl mbp uh, and
1: yeah. in 2005 alabama yeah. great you know and, and uh, he is uh you know not apologetic about his faith at all
0: neither should anybody be i mean no no, no one should be more about uh, that and Sean in a, in a in a future podcast. Reflecting on nine eleven, um, I was in Washington. I had just done a taping where I, in, in a green room I was watching on TV what looked to me like a private plane
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: flying into the building, and then it soon uh, became uh, obvious it was a lot more than that going on. I uh, went to my office at seventeen oh one Pennsylvania Avenue, Caddy Corner. Mm-hmm. From the White House, and the old Executive Office Building, and then I noticed maybe an hour later, two things: people pouring out of the White House complex. There was the word that it was perhaps going to be bombed, mm-hmm. uh, or an airplane would be crashing into it. People just pouring out, like in a like in a movie, you know, like right. Godzilla was coming, mm-hmm. um, and people fleeing with you know fear in their eyes. Then. Uh, Seeing because we had uh, an office pretty high up at 1701 across the river, smoke coming from the crashed plane of the Pentagon. What a day! Yeah, what an amazing, amazing day. And um, we all remember where we are. Where were you? So, I was um, uh, working at
1: Howry and Simon Law Firm in DC, but I was working in their records department in a suburb of DC in Largo, Maryland. I remember being in the records department, someone running out. Uh, to the floor saying, you know, a plane crashed, you know, in New York. So we run to the conference room. The news is on. And we watched the second plane hit. And my first thoughts were, what's going on? And, you know, what do we do now? Like, what, what what's happening? Because at first, we did didn't think it was terrorism or anything like that. And then once it became apparent that it was, it's okay. You know, what, what do we do now? I just remember... A lot of you know uh, confusion. A lot of sobbing. I mean, there were folks who work for the firm uh, from New York. I mean, they're crying. They're calling their family. They're calling their friends, trying to figure out is everyone okay. And uh, you know, it was uh, a day again that I'll never forget. It changed everything.
0: It did. Will n- not be the same, or we shouldn't be. Uh, I, I, it's just an odd thought. Again, we welcome our listeners to uh, to write us, tell us their nine eleven thoughts, but. You know, one of the great things about America is that we forget stuff and move on. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: One of the Mm -hmm. bad things about America is we forget stuff and move on. Uh, I remember about three, four years, maybe. I said the other day it was a few months, but it was a few years. I was doing an interview with an Oregon, Portland, Oregon radio station. And the guy said, you know, that attack, that 9-11 attack on you guys on the East Coast. I said, what? Hmm wasn't an attack on us guys in the East Coast. It was attack on America. Right. But it already had sort of, you know, gotten smaller and began to be more evanescent, you know, like it was just a less consequential event. Our enemies uh, remember stuff that's seven, eight 800, 1200 years old. You know, the radical Islamists remember the expulsion of, uh, you know, the, uh, the Islamists from Spain and, you know, the, way, way back crusades um china remembers its history mm-hmm. uh we need to know our history and more about our history sometime in the future but 9-11 is a day that uh, we need to recall and you know it's hard to get that footage of those planes going into the building we need to see that we need to see it again and be reminded of just how horrible it was
1: i remember for days and weeks after just how it seemed like the country came
0: together it did i remember there was a run on flags mm-hmm. you couldn't buy flags right they were all sold out and entire blocks neighborhoods democrats republicans all had the american flag up mm-hmm. the president was on the ground in new york they're going to hear our answer he said um, with those firefighters with him let's not forget attention must be paid
2: you're listening
0: to the bill bennett show, bill bennett show. All right, let's jump in with Congressman Mike Gallagher. Congressman, thank you for your time. I'm honored to be on. Thanks for having me. Let's, uh, I want to talk to you about China and your great piece uh, about China and what we need to remember about China and what it remembers about itself. But first, uh, this is 9-11 week. Um, where were you on 9-11?
3: I was a senior in high school, and I was in zero period in my uh, government class. And I remember, because I was on the West Coast at the time, um, The I believe the first tower got hit before I left for school in the morning, and then the second tower got hit by the time that I arrived at class, and we watch it. We watched both come down in class, um, mm-hmm. which at the time was obviously a shock, but it wasn't, you know, I'd be lying if I said I immediately rushed out to join the Marine Corps. It wasn't until a bit later in college, that I started to connect the dots between what had happened, our subsequent involvement in the Middle East, in my own sense of needing to serve and you know, wanting to do my part to keep the country safe. Well, you did uh, join the Marine Corps and you did right uh, out
0: of Princeton. And that doesn't happen often. I remember when our son graduated from Princeton and joined the Corps. I remember a couple of parents at graduation said, oh, my goodness, what happened? As if something had gone wrong.
3: <laughs> I got a similar uh, sentiment, I think even among some of my friends, who knew I was, I'd kind of become a Middle East geek in college and I studied Arabic and was really getting into the region, the culture and the language. So they knew I was interested in that, but it still wasn't something that you did necessarily. I mean, we had people like Nate Fick, who kind of blazed the trail at Ivy schools like Dartmouth and whose book was profoundly influential. On me and a lot of my peers. But I think my year we had two, myself and Eric Chase. And that was the first, I think, in two or three years when we'd had a a crew of people from Princeton that actually wanted to sign up and join. My sense is it's changed, um, maybe owing to the example of of your son. uh, But I, I think we're getting kind of a steady stream of people who are realizing this is a great way to serve the country. And also, It doesn't set you back professionally. Indeed, the opposite. I think it opens up a world of opportunities and a leadership credential and experience you can use in a business career. In other words, you know, it might be better to spend four years running around the Marine Corps than to go immediately to Wall Street. Tell us about your service in the Marines. Where were you? What did you do? I was a what's called a human intelligence officer, counterintelligence, human intelligence officer, and I deployed to Western Iraq, uh, a town called Al Qaim on the Syrian border. Uh, I first deployed in 2007, and then I did a back-to-back deployment, uh, so I went uh, into 2008. I was basically part of the surge, but the surge had kind of happened where the Marines were in western Iraq, Al-Ambar province, prior to the surge in the rest of the country. And so, by the time I got there, I mean, it was already turning around. Uh, That being said, I I got to see more of the transformation firsthand. I had a small team of more senior Marines, and we were in charge of collecting information from human sources, so running sources ourselves, building a source network, and also doing all the interrogations. And then being near Syria, you could literally throw a stone into Syria. We had a lot of you know, uh, terrorists who would cross the border. We dealt with a particularly a bad incident the first day of our deployment where a group of Al Qaeda operatives dressed in Iraqi army, stolen Iraqi army uniforms, crossed the border and slaughtered about 50 people in the local village. And so, but by the time we ended our deployment, I mean, it was, you could walk anywhere. Even if you didn't even need to wear your helmet or your protective gear. And so to see that transformation happen firsthand, Notwithstanding all the mistakes we made, obviously, early on in in the invasion and the failure to anticipate the insurgency, it was a remarkable expression of U.S. power and a reminder of what we're capable of when we're willing to work together and win the trust of the local population.
0: What's the lesson of uh, 9-11, your experience, Um, commemorations going on all this week? Uh, What do we need to remember most, the most important things to remember this week?
3: Well, I I literally just came from the memorial, which I'd never seen before. It's kind of hidden away in the Capitol commemorating the brave passengers of Flight 93. And uh, someone just made a comment while we were there. They had a group of uh, pilots and and, um, flight attendants. And they said, you know, this building might not even be here were it not for those passengers. And to think about just the mix of people that were on that flight ordinary people, all different backgrounds, political views, and just that sort of everyday courage. Um, it just kind of reminds me of these stories that you pick up from the veterans community, whether it's World War II vets or Vietnam vets, where it's stuff that will never get written into the history books. It's just regular citizens stepping up to do their part. And I think that's really the source of America's strength. I mean, it doesn't come from D.C. It doesn't come from the top down. It comes from the bottom-up. So that's one, I think, emotional lesson. And it also reminds me of the unity we had in this country in the period after 9-11 and the desire to put aside our differences and keep the country safe. Uh, The other thing I'd say from a more geopolitical or foreign policy-focused perspective, I think 9-11 quite uh, clearly illustrates the naivety of anyone suggesting we can live in a fortress America or that we could flirt with an isolationist posture, particularly with developments in modern warfare, the emergence uh, of cyber warfare, and uh, the necessity of, of really nurturing and building allies, I do think it's a reminder that we need to be forward deployed, forward engaged, and do everything to make sure that we don't allow terrorism to fester and wash up on our own shores.
0: While you're expert on these matters in ways few are, Um, what does that mean now for Afghanistan? Let's not talk about the Taliban at Camp David. Thank God that issue's over. The important thing is to
3: make sure we learn the lessons of Iraq in 2011 and avoid paving the way for Afghanistan to once again be a terrorist safe haven and and, and really have a clear-eyed understanding when we talk about withdrawal, the Taliban here surrender. Uh, So we have to negotiate from a position of strength. Now, that being said, I I don't have any problem with the president negotiating. Uh, I would love for us to be able to reduce our posture and end this war. I just don't want to do it precipitously uh, or based on an arbitrary uh, political timeline. And then if you kind of zoom out to what we're trying to do more broadly with U.S. foreign policy, I think the Trump administration hit the nail on the head in the National Security strategy and the national defense strategy when they argued that in contrast to the last 18 years where we have focused on counterterrorism and counterinsurgency in places like Afghanistan and Iraq really the pacing threat going forward is China and we find ourselves in an era of great power competition with China so inevitably in order to increase our presence in the indo pacom theater we will have to find a way to play moneyball In the Middle East and in Central Asia, and so we might have to get a a bit creative and and assume a little bit more risk in Afghanistan to, for example, enhance our presence um, in the First Island chain. But it's not a clear either-or scenario, and I think what we've learned um, the hard way under some of the disastrous decisions of President Obama was that weakness in one area can often have profound implications for American strength, and weakness uh, in other areas. So uh, this is a very complex problem. I'm not trying to suggest it's uh, easy, but I just want to make sure that we don't quickly withdraw and thereby give the Taliban an unnecessary advantage. Again, you have
0: great expertise in this, this 8,000 troops, 14,000 troops. Does that sound right? Um, 50,000 troops better? You're on armed services. What do you
3: think? I think w- with a narrow understanding of our interests in Afghanistan, and I think the only enduring interest we have, uh, is denying an attack on our homeland. I, I think somewhere on the order of, of 5,000 to 8,000, if they are prim- primarily playing an enabling role and we are increasingly relying more on competent Afghan forces, I, I think that should be enough to protect our interests over long-term, and then consider further withdrawal uh, down the line. Now, anyone in D.C., particularly Capitol Hill, telling you that, no, 10,000 is the right number is clearly lying. Even the military experts that are doing these estimates are are guessing, right? There's obviously, you know, history is often shaped by contingency, and we can't uh, predict the future. But I, I do think some small presence, in the way we've been able to leverage a relatively small a relatively inexpensive presence in Iraq to work byways and through local forces on the ground um, is a great way to increase our options and protect our interests right now.
0: Okay. Let's go to China. Uh, You wrote this excellent piece. uh, We put it up on the website so everybody can read it. Um, Let's digest it, uh, compress it. The two or three most important things we need to remember about China, or if we—it's not remembering, learn for the first time about China. Put it in perspective for us.
3: Well, I would begin with this: what I think is an interesting perspective, uh, just based on my last three years here in Congress. That shift in the national security strategy uh, and the national defense strategy that I mentioned before—I actually see that as a pretty big area of bipartisan consensus. And I would submit, even if You know, Trump loses this election, uh, which I actually don't think is going to happen, Um, unless it's Bernie Sanders in the White House. I think that bipartisan consensus on getting tougher on China will actually remain with us. I tend to think we are at a period uh, in our history right now that is roughly analogous to where we were with the Soviet Union in the late 40s and early 50s, which is why I wrote this piece. And I tried to, and I should put the caveat that, you know, I'm an Arabist by background. I'm not a phonologist. So what the hell do I know about China? But that's never stopped a member of Congress from opining about something. So I really tried to study and figure out, okay, this can be are reorienting our strategy and our entire national security bureaucracy around the china threat what do we need to know about the chinese communist party and that was really the context in which i was trying to write that article
0: and your comparison with uh, russia soviet union uh at the beginning and the end uh, i i noted uh, quoting george cannon uh a a similar situation in many ways so what are the things we need to know Uh, a lot of people give the president credit you know, for raising these concerns and for confronting China. And it's made uh, many of us take another look, including yourself, and you've done this helpful piece. What uh, what do the American people need to know or remember?
3: Well, I identified three things that I thought were most important. The first was the long shadow of, of Chinese history. And I think China is thinking in a much broader time horizon than we are here in the United States. And China really sort of remembers its period in which it was a dominant force globally, but also remembers its century of humiliation where it felt like it was exploited by foreign powers. And it really uh, exploits both of these narratives in order to enhance the power of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, it really sort of perpetuates the narrative that the greatest threat to China is weak central leadership, and that in turn invites foreign aggression and corresponding national humiliation, and vow never to suffer Humiliation at the fore at the hands of, of foreign barbarians and meddlers. The second um, strand that I identified was the history of the Chinese Communist Party itself. As an influence organization, basically since its founding, its earliest, earliest days, it acted the role of insurgent and both within China and then abroad as it sought to expand its power. It has perfected what it calls united front work. It's my belief that we are only beginning to see the true scope and scale of united front work, not just in places like Sri Lanka or anywhere that intersect with our Belt and Road Initiative, but right here on the homeland. And then, sorry, I'll wrap this up here. The third strand that identified was uh, just the dictatorial nature of the Chinese Communist Party's power. I mean, they're really, they've really, I think, convinced themselves that they can leverage technology in a way where they can succeed, where previous iterations of communism, particularly the Soviet variant... Failed, and she has studied the demise of the Soviet Union extensively. He's concluded that the problem was they were insufficiently dedicated to ideology. So, for anyone who thinks that China adopting some free market reforms is a sense that it will moderate its political behavior, I would suggest they're not paying attention. And things we're seeing, whether it's the social credit system or the use of technology to keep, let's say, a million Uyghur Muslims in a concentration camp. I think, are the beginnings of an Orwellian um, or surveillance state that they want not only to use to exploit their own uh, citizens, but also export to various countries abroad.
0: Can they sustain this? Um, my friend, maybe you know him, Gordon Chang, wrote a book. It's now a few years old, the Coming China Collapse. It hasn't collapsed yet. Some people think it will under the strain of many things. Um but, uh, well, for example, uh, some people uh, posit that the situation in Hong Kong could lead to uh, real problems for China in that if they send their military over there uh, to Hong Kong uh, this uh, for the whole world to see, this could be a very... Um, bad, consequential bad uh, moment for China.
3: Well, I was on a panel with Gordon, uh, I think, last year, and I, I think we were simpatico on most issues. One of the reasons I love working on China issues is it creates strange bedfellows. For example, uh, George Soros wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal yesterday that praised a piece of legislation I have. So surely this is a sign that the apocalypse is coming. Um, okay, yeah, that's the uh, first time on this yeah. show. Okay, <laughs> That's right. That's So right. Um, but, uh, listen, I, I think his, his point is well taken that there are systemic weaknesses, and ultimately you have to believe in sort of the fundamental and inherent strength of the American model versus the Chinese model. In the short term, um, I think Hong Kong does illustrate that China can, uh, can get a bit too aggressive. They can underestimate the counter reaction to some of their, Authoritarian instincts. And then they also have a very practical and immediate problem with pork. About half their pigs are dying due to an African uh, virus. And this really puts Xi in a precarious position. But over the long term, I'd say, um, you know, we start out with enormous advantages. Uh, One is this network of allies and friends that we've built since the end of World War II. And it's something that China does not have. They don't want friends, they don't want allies, they want tributary and vassal states. And so finding a way to work with our allies is, is job number one. But two, what I'm really worried about and why I actually think this is our generational struggle is we could we could easily beat ourselves in this competition, right? In other words, if we go further down this path of trying to do, you know, our own version of democratic socialism or trying to out China China, arriving at China light, we're going to wake up one day and we won't even recognize America. And that's why one of the most troubling stories that I read in the last two years in one of the areas I'm working on is this report that Google was unwilling to work with the Pentagon at the same time it was trying to expand its presence in China. And that suggests a cultural divide between some of the best and brightest in Silicon Valley and our military that over the long term just doesn't allow us to win this competition. So I I, I take Gordon's point, but I I think we face some of our own internal challenges that put us at a disadvantage.
0: Yeah, I think the argument, correctly from wrong, Mike, you know this better than I, but the argument Google made was, well, this was an arrangement with the government, not with the military, but... That doesn't really make any sense when you're talking about China, right? That's a distinction without a difference.
3: There's there's no distinction. Um, China has passed a law in 2017 mandating that any private company share its information with the Chinese Communist Party. And what we've seen recently, and you've had Google ex- or you've had Microsoft objectives also trying to push back on the idea that Chinese companies like Huawei uh, present a threat. Um, well, we've seen plenty of evidence recently uh, that, uh, for example, there was a big Wall Street Journal piece basically laying out, identifying how China was using 5G telecom infrastructure to spy on various African governments. We've had uh, something called the Finite States Report, which quite clearly demonstrated they built back doors into some of this technology. And then we've had individual researchers that were kicked out of China for exposing the fact that just through simply comparing resumes, hundreds of Huawei employees were simultaneously uh members of the Chinese military, in some cases assigned to doing network exploitation and penetration. So I, I think it is a distinction without a difference. We can consider companies like Huawei and DTE appendages of the Chinese Communist Party and really that competition for the future of the internet, which is taking place uh, taking place in capitals like London, uh to the north of us in Canada, um, uh, is really I, I think perhaps the most interesting part of this competition between the U.S. and China right now. A couple of other things on this. Um, uh, It's been said not even the devil himself
0: knows the mind of man. The motivation for Google, I'd rather it just be monetary, you know, the the Chinese market. But do you think it's ideological at some basis? They'd rather work with China than with their own government? They'd prefer Xi to Trump?
3: I think it's I think it's primarily economic and, and purely profit based, right? In contrast to the 1930s, where you actually had some members of the foreign policy establishment, notably John Foster Dulles, advocating working with uh, the Nazi Party in Germany as a bulwark against Bolshevism. I don't think there's a sense of sort of ideological or geopolitical chess here. However, there have been some recent troubling statements by political, influential political leaders, uh, notably Bernie Sanders, highlighting sort of the wonderful record China has in alleviating poverty. And I just would say two things. One, to the extent they have been able to let billions of people out of poverty, it's because they've moved more in a market direction. But two, that also ignores how many millions of people they've actually killed as well. So much easier to eliminate poverty if you're just killing the people that are suffering poverty. So perhaps there, I think there, well, let me say this. I, I do think there is a growing argument on the left that America is an evil country, that America is sort of irrevocably racist and America is a force for evil in this world. I see that sort of explicitly stated on a day-to-day basis. And maybe that sort of translates also into, well, you know, China's not so bad if America is this bad, evil yeah, place that yeah. just you know seeks to destroy the world.
0: No, I'm afraid so. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that's right. I, I'm afraid that people's hatred, contempt for the president or their fathers or whatever the, whatever the problem is here, uh, or the the history of the country as they were taught in high school, you know, using Howard Zinn's textbook, um, makes them see. The country is the embodiment of evil; therefore, any alternative uh, seems better. That's you know that goes back to my world, Mike, Captain, Congressman. Um, you know, I got my book coming out, three volume history of the United States, America, the last best hope, in October. I'm not trying to sell it; I'm just saying that it's our worst subject. Kids do not know the history of this country, and those that do know something about it have tend to have a very slanted view it is our worst subject american history worse than reading or math and uh, you know how are you going to love or defend or fight for or um, say a good word for something you don't understand or something worse that you've been taught is uh, corrupt to the core
3: Completely agree, and I, I really look forward to reading the book, and um, at the risk of being obsequious, uh, the Book of Man was, has had a profound influence on me, and, and all your writing has, has been great, uh, and, and particularly when I was in uniform.
0: Uh, one last question about China. Uh, well, two, two things. One thing I've noticed, just because uh, at uh, at this stage in my life, and people have asked me for some help, and then as they try to develop uh, private sector investment overseas. And amazing thing um, is how China just goes into countries, Africa takes all the resources, doesn't care about what's going on. Meanwhile, we have this moral squint. And, uh, you know, we're not going to allow investors to get into places in Africa or elsewhere until they do better on human rights. Uh, that's another test of us, I guess. Uh, but, uh, you know, the Chinese don't care about human rights if they can mine the the natural resources of of a
3: Zimbabwe. Well, I think this presents an interesting contrast between the region where I spent most of my post-college years, the Middle East, and then the region I I study a lot now, China. I mean, certainly as a a Middle East specialist, you're often confronted with these terrible dilemmas between wanting to advance the cause of human rights but having to prioritize more first-order concerns like security uh, in the near term. Um, So you you have to make choices. I've often said, you know, to preserve our our liberal and, and Lockean system at home, we have to at times be a bit Machiavellian abroad. But in the case of China, we actually don't have to make that choice, right? In other words, I see no downside into emphasizing China's terrible record on human rights, its concentration camp in Xinjiang, its threatening of Hong Kong, which also serves our higher order security uh, goals uh, and, and principles at the same time. When it comes to countries like Africa, uh, the fact is, you know, you know, obviously we should seek to advance the cause of human rights wherever we can, but we need to be present, right? I mean, we need, we need to actually be there and have relationships. And if the argument is that we cannot work with people until they approximate a Jeffersonian democracy, then we're gonna find ourselves pretty lonely in places like the Middle East and Africa pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, very grown up view, absolutely. Um why don't we leave it there? Uh you're a very busy guy. We are very grateful to you for the time. More grateful for your service to our country, uh your continuing service to our country. Very glad you are where you are right now, Congressman Mike Gallagher. Thank you sir. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Captain. You are listening to the Bill Bennett Show. Seth Leapson, host of the Seth Leapson Show, joins me now. Um, and uh, we've given the introduction and just told everybody how valuable you were to us, are to us, and will be to us.
2: So measure up. <laughs> You've always been known as not grading on a curve. You're a tough teacher, but Bill yeah. you, you are the best teacher I've ever had. So thank you. You're very kind. You've had some great teachers.
0: Um, 9-11, um, what do you remember? What stays in your mind? What are the stories, the people, the moments? Uh, Where were you? What was going on?
2: Bill, I remember it uh, like yesterday. I can't believe we're looking at it 18 years ago now. Um, It was a Tuesday morning. We were all at Empower America, which was a building Right on the corner of 17th and uh, Pennsylvania, the conference room overlooking the White House. And Tuesday morning, we, a small group of us had a regular uh, Bible study meeting. And it uh, ends at about 845 or ended at about 845. We all retired to our offices to start the day. I had NBC on in my office and uh, was watching Matt Lauer address on the Today Show what no one could quite understand. They thought maybe a small plane had hit one of the uh, towers of the World Trade Center. And as he was talking through it, as we hit about 9 o'clock, a few minutes after 9, we all walked live. That second plane hit, and uh, everyone yelled on the studio uh, microphone, and we, uh, we all just kind of looked at amazement a friend of mine called me about 20 minutes later from another office in D.C. saying, are you hearing what's going on? He said, yeah, I'm watching it. He said, we're closing the offices. Everyone is going home. We just don't know what's happening right now. But there's just a lot of reports coming in that D.C. is being targeted. At this point, we knew terrorism was afoot. And within about two minutes of hanging up the phone, the Secret Service came storming in to empower America and evacuated you and me and the whole staff out of there. Clearly, they thought that uh, they needed to protect the White House, and with our conference room overlooking it, of course, it would have been a prime place for you know someone to take aim at the White House. And you and I uh, went down the stairs, and we tried to grab a train to get back up north to our homes, and we waited a long time because there were just lines. This lines waiting, uh, waiting to get in. The metro. You and I, uh, yeah, the metro. You and I went to our respective homes, and the next morning, three of us showed up at work, and me and our press secretary Jeff Kutowski, and we called Jean Kirkpatrick. You may recall this. And uh, Jack Kemp showed up a few minutes later, and the four or five of us got on the phone and said uh, we need to make a declaration of war. And we drafted one that Gene put the fine touches on, and we sent it to the Speaker of the House and uh, the Senate Majority Leader, and released it. And we formed uh, the next day we formed an organization called Americans for Victory over Terrorism, which was your idea, with uh, former CIA Director Jim Woolsey, Charles Krauthammer, a few others, with the task of going to college campuses. To explain to uh, young students, college students what the nature of the threat was and what this country and the free world would have to do to obtain the kind of victory we would need to obtain to put us uh, put under this threat of terrorism and uh, you may recall uh, we went to a lot of campuses from Harvard to Columbia yes. to UCLA uh, and uh, I think we did good work and uh, it, was a, um, it was a day I'll just, uh, I'll never forget. It was a, 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 an era I'll never forget.
0: I just mentioned uh, before you came on I, before evacuating I do remember looking out of that window in the conference room which did overlook the White
2: House and seeing yep. people just pouring out. Just- That's right. That's right. And there was a meeting of some form or another. You and I weren't at it. It was a briefing at at, uh, the Capitol. And I remember Jean Kirkpatrick was actually testifying and someone mentioned they saw someone because, you know, she was getting a little uh, on in years. So I had to carry her out. Uh, to get her out fast enough. So it was, it was a lot of confusion, uh, a lot of rushing, a lot of people. And uh, I think it's fair to say the world changed.
0: The world changed. Tell us, uh, you know, um, all the drop scenes drop at once upon a hundred thousand stages. Yates says, um, and, um, and uh, uh, George Steiner had an essay years ago in the New Yorker, in which he says, you know, the only way to grasp an event of enormous uh, power and significance is to, is to seize on a particular or two. Yeah. You and I both seized on the Particular story of Rick Roscorla. Tell tell that story this, to this audience.
2: When I yeah, when I hear the name, I get chills. I'm getting them now. Yeah. Uh, I did not know who Rick was. He may be one of the finest Americans to have ever lived, and wasn't born here. We learned about him in an op-ed, James Woolsey, that appeared in 2001 in the Wall Street Journal. His op-ed was to describe people like Rick Riscorla and that Hollywood should make movies about people like Rick Riscorla and that the government should listen to people like Rick Riscorla. Rick was born in Great Britain and was uh, moved to America during the Vietnam War. As many Americans and others were fleeing America, trying to get out of the Vietnam War, he came here to join our fight. He came to America because he wanted to fight in Vietnam on behalf of the United States free world. He was in the famous Battle of Yadrang, which uh, was the uh, subject of a movie. We Were Soldiers Once the Young, as well as a book. He's on the cover of it. He's on the cover of that book. I believe Mel Gibson starred in the movie. After Vietnam, he came back and worked in private security, ultimately becoming the head of security for Morgan Stanley. And he was there when the terrorists attacked the World Trade Center in 1993, an attack most people forget. Uh, It could have been hugely disastrous. Um, It was minorly disastrous with the loss of a lot less lives. About six people died. But he knew they were coming again. He knew they would try again. And he led regular evacuation drills with his bullhorn of the Morgan Stanley employees for when such an attack would come. He was known as a pain in the butt to the Morgan Stanley employees because you're they're busy doing their work. And of a sudden, he would create an evacuation drill. Can you imagine? No, I've, I've heard but this uh, se-
0: several times that these, uh, you know, kind of buttoned down and hot shot, uh, you know, brokers and uh, desk workers and, you know, investors. Morgan Stanley would say, oh, no, not Raskorla. And he'd make them go up and down the stairs in, a, in an exit of fire drill, right?
2: He was their pain in the butt. Absolutely. Interrupting the day. And on 9-11... They were all prepared because of this pain in the butt. And he led them out, saving well over a thousand lives, perhaps thousands of lives. They almost all got out. And the last person to see him said, Rick, now you got to go. And he said, let me just make one more run. Make sure everyone's out. And he never came out. And you and I became friendly in telling that story with his wife, his widowed bride, Susan, and regularly would have her on the show on 9-11 anniversaries on your radio show, Bill Bennett's Morning in America. And they approached us and asked if you wouldn't mind recommending to the president that Rick Rescorla be granted a posthumous medal of honor. And you drafted a letter to President Trump. And sure enough, it's just a delight to say Rick Scola will be receiving the Presidential Citizens Medal, which is the second highest civilian award in the United States. He'll receive it. His bride will be given it this year. And you and I have been invited to that ceremony.
0: Uh, all true, except for one thing. You drafted the letter. Um, I, don't think I, I don't think I corrected it. I, you and I, 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 but I know I signed
2: still- it. Bill, you and I work so closely together, I don't know if you write what I think or I think what you write, but it was an honor working on behalf of Rick with It was an honor.
0: Yeah, and uh, it's hard to uh, for me to think of 9-11 without thinking of Rick with Man, I've never met, but whom I, I, I have a sense I, I know better or aspire to know better than a lot of people I know. Um, extraordinary man. Did they ever make a movie? They made something. Somebody made something, right?
2: There's a few documentaries out there that are short, you know, 20, 30 minutes. Uh, but boy, if they could make a movie about this man, you know, you like to talk about character in the Aristotelian sense, how to learn characters to watch and follow the deeds and efforts and words of good and great men and women. He would be one. And you have profiled them in your book, The Book of Man. And I believe we dedicated, I, I don't believe, I know, we dedicated one of our books on terrorism, The Fight of Our Lives, right. to him and his memory. Yeah. That's
0: right. That's right. Yeah, well, you know, 2021 is coming up. Uh, Hollywood has enough lead time to make a movie about Rick Scorla, Uh The Last Man Out, or The Last Man Not to Go Out, <laughs> The Last Man In. That's right. Um, That's right. uh, for, for release That's in right. 2021. It's not too late. This was, no. uh, you mentioned the classical ideals. This was a man of Megalopsuki, of Megalopsuki, as the Greeks would say, greatness of soul, uh, enormous greatness of soul, a real soldier, and uh, uh, incredible inspiration. There were other stories of heroism that day, of on F Flight 93, uh, those civilians that uh, took control of the cockpit and maybe. Saved the White House or the Capitol. Um, uh, uh, there were lots of extraordinary stories.
2: Bill, uh, Bill, with regard to Flight 93, I remember a series of speeches you gave around the country at the Heritage Foundation, elsewhere uh, that popularized the term, which you start, which was that phrase, moral clarity. You see it a lot now. That phrase didn't really exist much in our vernacular until um, until you started writing and talking about it, with respect particularly to Flight 93. I won't do it as well as you. Maybe you can fix it. But I remember you talking about uh, what that must have meant and what it should mean to everyone who observed it. If those men on Flight 93, these ordinary businessmen, the scourge and scorn of so many Hollywood movies, right, you said... Um, you know, if they were not successful, they would have died as would have everyone else in that airplane, and many, many more. But they knew if they were successful, they would die as well, dying for a cause. The cause was their country, and uh, what they did on that day so- saved untold numbers of lives, sacrificing them themselves. You remember there was an audio recording when I seized on where one of them was speaking from the airphone that uh, to his spouse saying. We're waiting to get over an uninhabited area. Gives you chills, too, doesn't it? Yeah.
0: Well, you're nice to bring up the phrase moral clarity, which uh, some have noticed, but it's not the phrase we remember from that story. And, and, and that's right. The phrase we remember from that story is, let's roll.
2: We're thinking, uh, Bill, about when let's roll ended. I always think in these terms, where did we lose it? When did it stop? You and I kind of were thinking a lot about the unity that was created after 9-11. And when did that dissipate? We fixed it to a speech the following February Al Gore gave at the Commonwealth Club. He's still being very bitter over the loss of the 2000 election. And we were, contempl- we, were we were already in Afghanistan and contemplating having to go into Iraq. And he compared then-President George W. Bush's wartime plans to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Yes, Talk about losing all, all moral clarity was lost with that statement of Al Gore. It's a terrible analogy. We are not the Soviet Union. We were not invading for lucre or any other land grab. And then I think there was another incident, quite frankly. That was February 2002? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. Go ahead. One marker. Early 2002. The second marker? The second marker, yeah, there were probably others, but the second one that stands out in my mind was the Fort Hood terrorist attack where Nadal Hassan, an Army major, a U.S. Army major, a physician trained by the United States, went in and killed as many fellow soldiers as he could in an Army fort in Texas. And the next day... Again, on the Today Show, the Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army, General George Casey, said in exactly these words, as horrible as the loss of life was at Fort Hood, if we lose diversity in our military, that would be worse. And you and I had our jaws on the floor when he said that. The idea that force protection, defending our own men and women in the U.S. military, would take a second seat. To the notion of diversity in the U.S. military from the chief of staff of the Army. It's when I knew moral clarity was at great deficit.
0: And then later in that case, it was uh, what? Workplace violence, not uh, jihadist.
2: The Obama correct? administration tried to classify it as, yes, just what people used to call a, a disgruntled employee going postal. But you'll recall there were stories that came out after that incident, after that attack, of fellow employees, fellow soldiers of. Nadal Hassan's saying yeah he was giving presentations he was scaring us but we didn't want to report it because we thought we'd get in trouble because diversity and criticism any kind of criticism of perceived fascism, they were afraid to report boy I sure hope no one's afraid to report it anymore I sure hope they learned the lesson I'm not convinced we have
0: right. he had a business card I remember it said soldier of Allah that's right that's oh. right you know, say, see something, say something. You know, I I don't know if they mean it. I, I just finished this book, uh, you know, uh, Why Meadow Died. You know the book I'm talking about? Yes, of course. Right. The Young Woman at Parkland High School in Florida. And mm-hmm. uh, yep. same thing. There are 41 reasons in one chapter things, you know, alarm signs that could have been ye- heeded that weren't. But there was one special ed uh, teacher uh, who said this uh, killer where he was a killer, but obviously he was intent on killing, called everybody out and said, my God, we've got to do something. He's going to kill some people. That's all he can talk about. But uh, use your word, was not heeded. So we need to heed. Um, We need to pay attention. Attention must be paid, especially as we remember uh, 9-11. Any other thoughts, Seth?
2: Yeah. This war is not over, and it's easy to think that it might be. You know, we live very luxurious, comfortable lives. The poor in America live better than the Sun King and more freely. But let us not forget that in the last 30 days, in the last month, there were 108 terrorist attacks in this world, killing 551 people. This war goes on. We may have done a pretty good job here thwarting some 50 to 60 attacks, but they're still coming. They're still aiming. They still hate us. It's going to be another long twilight struggle. I sure hope we're up for it. I worry about that sometimes. Right. And a
0: brief moment of forgetfulness, but recovered by the president, the Taliban at Camp
2: David, no way, can't ever happen. Agreed. Agreed. That was not a good decision to, to, to try and get. Um, this is an organization that needs to be put asunder. This is an organization that we cannot share the earth with. Yeah, that's right. I remember
0: when you say that there are some people we really just can't coexist with. What was that uh, business that we saw about uh, uh, women getting impregnated and then raped and then and then uh, uh, killed for the, for the crime of having babies without being
2: married? I, I, I remember, Absolutely. Yeah. You know. This. No, a- a- absolutely right. You had, you had terrorist women encouraging other women to uh, engage uh, in these kinds of behaviors and then only to be punished for engaging in these behaviors. Um, you know, you think about this world. We, we did a lot of work with Christopher Hitchens of uh, recently hey. blessed memory. I'll never forget he said when we're bombing some of these places, it's the first time in the history of the world we're bombing them into the Stone Age. Um, no. Bombing them out of the Stone Age. He thought he, uh, his phrase was too because they were so <laughs> really? no part of it. really Really?
0: Yeah. I yeah. thought yeah. He, I could have sworn. and Here we go again, Seth. We'll just let the audience do this. This is what we do. I thought he said this. is <laughs> yeah. the, the, the normal yeah. phrase is you bomb people into the Stone Age. But he was saying this is the first case in history of bombing them out of the Stone Age. Now girls can go to school, etc., cetera, et cetera. No? Let, let's, let's, <laughs> I think
2: the phrase is to bomb someone out of the Stone Age, Bill. That's that's what I just said. That's the typical phrase. And and Hitch instead bomb them into because they were so far ancient to the Stone Age. That's why I thought it was so interesting.
0: They were living in the Stone Age and we
2: bombed them out of it. So now girls. They were living in his view, they were living below the Stone. They weren't even into the Stone Age. Let's see the quote. You no, know, you know what, Bill? You're right, as I'm looking at it now. Um, yes, it was reversed at the Curtis-Lame line. Uh, Hitchens did say... Uh, the first time, if anything, that a country was bombed out of the Stone Age. You have it right. That was Christopher Hitchens' construction. He was so helpful. We sure miss minds like that, minds like his and Charles's. But uh, they taught us so much, and we were delighted to have them on the college campuses when we ran around. Think about an entering college freshman right now. No memory of nine eleven whatsoever. Not at all. Not at all. We got to teach it
0: right. Seth, thank you. This was uh, great. Thank <laughs> you for those thoughts. You know, i had totally forgotten part of what you said which is going back to the office the next day and then now i remember drafting that yep 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 absolutely
2: you and i wrote the first draft with jack oh. another man of blessed memory and we sent it to gene we faxed it we were faxing in those days we faxed it to gene and i was a little nervous because you know why <laughs> and who she was and I asked her if it was okay if she was on board. I'll never forget what she said. She says it's fine, but you guys need to toughen it up. Yeah. <laughs> God bless her. God That's right. bless her.
0: That's right. We yeah. miss her, too. Thanks, Seth. Thank you very much. God bless you, Bill. That does it for today's show, folks. Catch up on previous episodes of the show. Go to BillBennettShow.com. If you have uh, memories of 9-11 uh, that you want to share with us, where you were, what you were doing, what you recall, a story that you like. Something that stayed with you here all, over almost 20 years. Let us know. Now, you know, you can follow me on Twitter, William J. Bennett. And you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. Now, if you want to email the show, Claude, what, what do you do? Bill
1: Bennett podcast at gmail.com.
0: Bill ben- the, uh, Bill Bennett podcast at gmail.com. That'll do it. Share this podcast with your family
2: and friends. We'll catch up next week.